right. Well, this is just a little pre-note. Mm. Hi, I'm Liddy and this is Mark. Hello. Um, we started recording this epic narrative. Epic meta narrative. And then realised that it was really, really long and we're going to split it into two episodes, but we decided to go with one. Yeah. One it's, yeah. mega banquet. Yeah. It's, it starts at the, it's basically starts at the Capitol riot. Goes on a history from about 1939, touching on everything from James Bond to Buffy the Vampire Slayer to nuclear war, the internet, yep. uh, manufacturing moving to Japan, um, and Taliban-style beards. Yeah, we've really covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Uh, so rather than split it across a couple of episodes, we've decided to package it into one Epic feast. So enjoy. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy. We're here in 2021. Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you, Mark. And, And our listeners. Oh, yes. I thought you were just saying Happy New Year oh, to was. me. It was, it was a universal Happy New Year <laughs> that went out. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We all feel greeted in the new year now. We're sitting here with our uh, hot beverages mm. and the crumbs of croissants past. Mm. I just put a picture. I'm actually looking at likes as uh, on Instagram as I put up a picture of us um, eating our croissants, although... Yeah. I always, it's just, I, find, I always find it so weird putting up pictures of myself on Instagram. Um, you look normal. I look extreme. I look like I a, don't know I, that I do. Look I look normal. like a dictator. <laughs> I have the arrogance of a dictator holding up a pastry, the, the Republic of Pastries. Um, and yet the people still like it. So, yes. Go figure. Yeah. Well, here we are in 2021, and there has been a great deal of things happening mm. in the world mm. uh, since we last chatted. Mm. So, where are we going to go from here? What's yeah. what's the deal? Yeah. Well, I mean, there was almost this interesting thing at the end of 2020 that a lot of people, you know, thought that all these big, huge seismic shifts in the world would obey the sort of, you know, Gregorian whatever calendar that we live by. Um, but in many ways it's continued. And January, which used to be a really slow news <laughs> month, mm-hmm. you know, where I think that they – I used to get annoyed when I was younger because I, you know – like following world affairs and and basically they would just have some sort of stitched together end of year special you know done by the intern while the rest of the team went to the beach but that's not been the case this year lots happening um and in many ways 2021 seems like an outplaying of some of the the trends that we began to see in in 2021 uh, but i think um you know, for me, you know, I feel like there's this really important work to be done at this time. Um, I guess interpreting our culture, it's always mm-hmm. there, but it's happening at such a rapid rate. And um, one of my heroes, John Stott, um, you know, was someone who had this idea of, you know, preaching into the culture, reading the culture, Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other. And, you know, he would retreat, you know, he preached at his, his, his parish in London and then he would retreat to Wales, had a house there and he would reflect on things like, you know, industrial relations <laughs> and, and, you know, Christianity. And um, in many ways I realise now it's almost like you're doing it on the go. It's really hard because there's just yeah. so much opinion. Things are happening in real time. You know, like the Capitol riot, you know, I was, I was, mm. we were on our summer break and, you know, yes. I'd wake up and, um, you know, my friends texted me um, 
and just like check this out you know and you look at the pictures and you know you're just trying to wake up and it's just like news is happening and yes. so commentary is happening and in the midst of that I think it's it's hard to look at these things often biblically because it's also reactive mm. and um, you're also looking at these things in this hugely loud, you know, I guess, space of, of commentary and, and you know, real time. So I thought it'd be good to sort of take a step back and, you know, we're, we're a couple months – or not a couple months, we're like a month on from some of these things like the Capital Right and so on. Um, but, you know, I think there's big things at play in the world. Okay, so if we're going to be taking a step back, where do we start? Yeah. I think that the big theme in the world is that, um, you know, I think we're coming to the end of a phase. I think we're coming to the end of sort of the American century. And, you know, I want to pull that apart a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And the American century is, is really important because it it's affects everyone in the world. And, you know, um, there's a whole bunch of tensions and contradictions within the American century which are now playing out, you know. And increasingly I'm seeing like the pandemic. Um, if you've ever been on like the underground train or subway or whatever where – you're going along and there's a part of the track where obviously the power's not on. So you're like, you're going along, it's all, the lights are on. Yes. And then it just goes pitch black. And, and you're like, okay, you sort of sit there like, this is really creepy, but you know that it's going to sort of come back on, you know. And it feels a little bit like that with the pandemic. They're, we're sort of barreling along and the lights have gone out mm. and we're waiting for the lights to go back on and see what world's going to emerge. So there's all these, you know, huge changes in the world, geopolitical shifts and so on. But I guess I'm trying to like think about this biblically as well. And... A little clue, um, uh, I think I want to begin with at the Capitol riots. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting um, in the, I think it was January 6th, really interesting in the sort of wash up hearing the, the language as people talked about it. And there were sort of two sets of language. And I think this points to a bigger theological issue. Um, so first of all, you heard, um, you know, people on the sort of news commentating and, and lamenting what had happened and criticizing what had happened and using this language like the sacred grounds of the capital, mm -hmm. you know, sort of penetrated. And, you know, uh, this is almost the whole, you know, almost this holy temple language, this yes. desecration. And it's really interesting if you if you have a biblical sort of ear for hearing things, you realize this is language that, yeah, it's temple language, that the idea of a temple is this sacred space, which is a model of the universe, which has lines of where, um, you know, you can pass and not pass, where certain people can go. You've got sort of like this elite um, who, you know, are sort of the temple priesthood, you know, and you've got this idea also of then you've got the people who are coming from outside, like we're coming here to save our country, almost that going into the temple to almost cleanse the temple. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this language around the constitution, so fascinating. So in the holiest of holies, in the Jerusalem temple, you had the, um, you know, the, 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 the uh, tablets that, you know, Moses had brought down from the mountain, you know, existing in the ark. Mm. And there's always this, this concept of, you know, like we're coming here to sort of defend the constitution. So I think that got me sort of thinking like it, it, in this really fascinating way, what is going on here? Mm. And so I think actually the biblical idea of the temple actually gives us this access point and insight um, with how to view the world and also what's happening at this moment. And I think a lot of our analyses gets bogged down in this left-right thing. And, you know, you take one side versus the other. But almost there's this time to actually step back and sort of say, hang on, what, what's the biblical view for looking at, you know, what's going on this bigger scale? Okay, so when we look at this situation through the temple lens, are you just meaning that that's happening just in the capital, just in America, or is this something that's happening more broadly? 
Yeah. So the idea I want to talk about today is that actually in many ways we see the world as a kind of temple. Mm -hmm. And what the coronavirus has done, stopping international travel, um, stopping many people being able to you know, cross borders, us being sort of stuck in place, and in many ways putting this pressure on the global system, it has actually revealed something in our beliefs about the world. Mm. So just to go back really quickly, I just want to touch on a temple just to get people's ideas around this. Like um, if you think about the Jerusalem temple, the Jerusalem temple is in many ways theology put in stone. Mm. And, you know, it is built um, following on from the example of the tabernacle where Moses is instructed to build this, this, this meeting place with God, um, which is, we learn in Hebrews, a replica of, you know, what exists in heaven. So this is an outpost, an emissary, uh, an embassy of heaven on earth. And the Jerusalem temple also was a model of how the world should work. It contained, you know, all kinds of things like had this bowl which represented the sea, etched into the walls with these images of trees. So this was a model of how the universe should work. And also it was this place where humans you know, met with God. Mm. And all around Israel, there were these other temples. And temples are true all over the world. You know, you had different temples. And most temples, in contrast to the Jerusalem temple, actually held um, an idol. So this was a place where it housed the idol and you went in there and you offered things to the idol. You know, you had the Babylonian cities, um, you know, were built around this. We see this in South America, you know, with many of the sort of ancient uh, cultures of South America. So it was a model of the universe, how the universe should work. Mm. And it was also this way of, I guess, communicating from, you know, our space into the eternal or into the space of of. of and other other beliefs, gods or God. Interesting, you don't have an idol in the Jerusalem temple. You have this, you know, sort of what Scripture talks about, this footstool. So it's got this idea of sort of God in heavens and his sort of feet coming into the earth, but it's also the place where humans and God communicate. Um, but there's these really interesting lines. There's If you're going to come into a temple, you then have this, this uh, purification that, that you would go through. Um, you know, you have sort of the temple, the Jerusalem temple, is divided into three zones. There's sort of the outer court, and some people could come in there, and and um, then you had the holy place where then another set of people could go, and there was these lines, and you couldn't cross them, and then you had the holiest of holies. And the holiest of holies was divided by a veil, um, and then once a year at the sort of Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and, you know, offer you know, uh, uh, sacrifice or, you know, like atonement for the sins of the mm-hmm. people. So all these themes... Who's in? Who's out? What's clean? What's not? What's acceptable? What's not? Who is the priesthood? Mm. Um, who gets to cross over? What needs to stay out? How do we commune with God? What should a model of the universe look like? All these are contained in temples. Now, most of us look at temples, and these were hugely important things. You know, you look at Athens, you know, and there's the Parthenon there, and cities were built around mm. the temples. Now, we think this doesn't. Um, actually um, linked to us today, but I think it does. Mm. And, you know, I want to go back to a story. So this really interesting uh, that China, um, they had a, a temple palace where the emperor lived and very much the worldview of the um, emperor oh, and, and of China at that time was that China was sort of the middle kingdom, which was at the centre of the world. And its place in the sort of geopolitical realm was for everyone to come and, and bring their, their emissaries to China and would, they would often bow before the emperor, which was a way of like, we want to do trade with you, but you need to sort of recognize that China's at the center of the universe. And the interesting that the palace was also a temple. So you have this interesting like king priest thing in, yes. in the emperor. Now, 
uh, in the uh, series of conflicts that we call the Opium Wars, what happened in the 19th century was you had the um, sort of uh, East India Company, you had this like corporation that the British government had set out as Britain started to sort of colonise the world. And they came into China and they wanted to tra trade with China, but they refused to kowtow. So they're like, we're not going to actually bow down to your cosmology of the world. And this caused this dispute. And you can understand why the Chinese were like, well, we don't actually want you selling drugs yeah. um, to us. So you had the Britain as a government selling drugs. Um, and uh, they then burnt the temple and burnt this palace. And in mm. a sense, it's this way of saying, well, we're destroying your view of the world. So you could look at that and you could go, well, here's these you know, modern Westerners coming in, uh, this incorporation which will you know, show where the world is sort of going. And um, you know, they're just destroying temples because this is the new sort of slow move towards our secular age. Mm -hmm. But then I thought about this and I thought, hang on, okay. Here is this East India Company, this corporation that's set up by the British government. They had their own sort of military, this corporation. They had their own college. Uh, people like Charles Darwin were actually, I think he trained at the East India College. Oh, wow. um, it, it, they sort of had this belief. Malthus, who was sort of predated Darwin, who believed that the world was going to be overrun by population and you know, all these sort of theories that came from him, um, was linked to the East India Company. So, you know, in many ways, what is this mega corporation that goes out beyond Britain into the world? And you begin to realise that really what, what their temple was, the whole world was their temple. And what's really interesting is that one of the things that you begin to see when you look at scripture is that actually, in many ways, um, the temple is a model of creation. Mm. And that actually, you know, when God in Genesis sends people out into, into the world to go forth and multiply... Uh, he's actually sending them out, and uh, you know, Beale talks about this um, in his book about the temple. That that sort of then taking God's presence, going forth, and making the whole world a temple. So where the worship of God is everywhere. So the temple is not contained to one place; it's going out. Mm. What you see in the East India Company is this this twisted post-Christian version where basically that's happening, but instead of like going forth and spreading God and his way in the world and turning the world into a temple, you're turning into another kind of temple, but at the centre of that is humans. Mm. And at the centre of that is this vision of the modern world. And so we have here this, I think, in the world. One way of looking at the world is through this temple lens. And what it begins to show is that what we think is this very secular world is not as secular as we think it is. And there's this definite temple theology all around us that we see in the world at this moment. Okay, so this notion that you're exploring of the world temple concept, it's almost like globalization, right? Is that the new yes. kind of temple? That you're yes. talking about? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so fast forward to the beginning of World War II. At the beginning of World War II, you've got this really interesting handover moment. And so much of what you see happening in the capital even, what you're seeing happening in the world now, we can trace back to decisions that were really made in the sort of second half of the 20th century. Mm. Britain begins to realise that, um, you know, it's going to have increasingly trouble um, controlling uh, its empire. And World War II kicks off, America's not involved, Britain is, and Britain very much finds itself sort of completely isolated. Uh, Germany takes over much of Europe. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's this question of what's going to happen to this empire in the world. And a bunch of thinkers start to get together 
And in many ways, a lot of the elites, if you like, of the United States, particularly based in the financial industry of New York, begin to sort of speculate how, you know, what it would look like if America got involved in the world. And then how do you build a world after that? What Mm. they had seen in the 1930s was democracy fall. They had seen the Great Depression upturn the democratic liberal world order. They had seen the rise of far-right thought um, across Europe. They had seen the rise of communism. And democracy seemed to be completely disappearing. So they began to ask the question, how do we proactively plan for what the next stage of the world looks like? Um, And so one group of these sort of Wall Street interests sponsored by John Rockefeller, who created Standard Oil, one of the biggest companies in the world, um, they funded this thing called the Council on Foreign Relations, which is still today one of the most influential think tanks in the world. And they approached the US State Department and they basically said to them, you're going to be wrapped up soon with the war. Why don't you subcontract to us a vision of what the world will be after? Mm. And it's really, really interesting. So they basically have this thing, I think it's called the War and Peace Studies. And they basically plan what would a post-war world order look like. And what they're doing is they're planning the American century. So these 20 or so individuals then are just giving carte blanche. They've got a sponsor. They're given permission by their government to plan how does, in a sense, the world become America and the world as America as an alternate to actually the chaos that they're experiencing at this time. Now, what's really, really interesting is they start to play with this theme. They look at the world and they literally have this map and they look at the world and they say, well, looks like the Nazis will take Europe. Britain will sort of keep elements of its empire. But there's this other part of the world which is still ours. Now, really interesting, deeper in the American psyche was this concept of the frontier. Hmm. And the frontier myth is this huge part of American culture. And the frontier myth, um, you know, sort of begins as, you know, you've got people coming across from Europe, you've got the pilgrims, you've got the enlightenment thinkers who would become the founding fathers. And in many ways, what America seemed to offer was this sort of virgin land out of which to paint your new dreams. And the further you went west, you could actually forget Europe and almost it was back to a kind of year zero. Now, this also happens, uh, America is birthed at this time where the Enlightenment thinking is Mm. is huge in the world. This idea that humanity had reached this new moment where we were throwing away the superstition of the past. Many of them saw religion as it was understood as part of that. And now there was this opportunity for humans to come together now that we are enlightened and create this new kind of, of way of relating to each other. So it was very much this sort of a newness, year zero, and it was this new frontier of political thought. And it was this revolutionary idea. They had fought a revolution against Britain mm. and broke, done a definite break with the past. And so what is really interesting is whenever you sort of had people like there was this almost entrepreneurial individualistic spirit, which then people would keep going inland and America spreads out across the continent. Now, there's some contradictions in here. Um, This idea that what Thomas Jefferson comes up with is, is this idea of an empire, but it's different. It's an empire of what he calls liberty. Um, Thomas Paine, another sort of uh, founding American thinker, said, we have it in our power to remake the world. Mm. Really interesting, that word world. And so these ideas are very much in the sort of you know, cultural, intellectual sort of atmosphere. So the frontier initially is the Western frontier as Americans span out across the country, the entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. new migrants, they head out. Eventually, this is sort of contained by the Western seaboard, which is today California and yep. Washington State. But there's still this sort of myth, this myth of freedom, this empire of liberty to go further out. Um, 
when we get to the Civil War era, this idea hasn't ended. It's really interesting too that the Confederacy and the Southern states they find themselves hemmed in by the northern states and then they have this like idea of like, well, we still want to have the frontier, we're going to go south. And they come up with this insane idea to actually create a white supremacist sort of empire which then takes in the Central American states. Mm -hmm. So you've got this definite idea of almost expanding out into the world. So it's like America's created, but it because of this frontier myth, it could never just stay within the confines of a normal country. Yes. And so throughout different parts of American history, you see this. You see uh, uh, when oil becomes this huge thing in the United States um, and the car becomes this whole thing. Um, the road becomes this emblem of freedom. I wrote about Jack Kerouac and his book mm. On the Road. Um, just another example, John Updike's um, uh, classic novel Run Rabbit, um, which I think was written in 1960. Um, I think it's Harry Angstrom Rabbit, the main character. There's this bit where he's frustrated with his marriage. He just starts driving. He just drives through many yeah, states. Yeah. It's like get in the car, go. Absolute individual freedom. The car is a frontier or a car taking you to the frontier. Yes. Uh, the Kennedy administration actually used the term the new frontier and they talked about this new way of a running America in the second half of the 20th century where you had really smart people come in and John Kennedy was this sort of like charismatic, uh, you know, picture-perfect Camelot family and, you know, with the new frontier. And at that time in arts, there was like jazz and abstract expressionism, modernism mm. is the new frontier. Um, when the space race happens, which John F. Kennedy sort of kicks off, they talk about space. And even at the 1960s, the beginning of Star Trek, it's space. The final frontier is what Captain Kirk says at, at the beginning. Um, really interesting as the sort of tumult of the 60s kicks off and there's almost this moment of, you know, doubt about the American experiment as the civil rights movement kicks off and people realise that this whole empire of liberty is also built on the back of slavery and built on the back of so many other things. There's this sort of like the war in Vietnam also mm -hmm. is this thing. So it's really interesting. Uh, Christopher Lash talks about this in The Culture of Narcissism that what was this sort of frontier to change society, like the new frontier of Kennedy, then actually turns inwards. Mm. And then you see the late 60s and almost the hippies then become the new ages or the people then go inwards and there's this whole sort of movement in California of people looking at the inner space, inner frontier. Yeah. Um, you know, this is where counselling and therapy and new age um, thoughts and all of this and personal transformation mm -hmm. and um, people getting interested, you know, things like the Enneagram, all of this sort of comes from this sort of milieu on the sort of West Coast uh, of the United States. Um, you then have like even at the beginning of the internet, you have – well, actually at the, at the sort of end of the 50s, they have this um, – uh, I think it's Norbert Weiner talks about cybernetics and the next frontier is this network, which is exactly what we spoke about in yeah. you know, a series. And the internet as, you know, in the early 90s, late 80s, as the new frontier of cyberspace. So what's really interesting is there's this huge sort of dynamic energy to always go to this frontier. Mm -hmm. Now, I actually want to put that biblically, mm. you know, and that's often called American exceptionalism. But looking at it this biblically, or is that actually wanting to expand the boundaries of the temple. Mm. And if there's an in and out of temple, I actually wonder and, and speculate that what that is is that biblical vision to actually take the, the, the presence of God out into the world then is reimagined as in a post-Christian form, so the, the, the structure's there, but it's actually taking out this, this, this almost like evangelistic message into the world. So... How this works, and it's really interesting, is back to the Council on Foreign Relations at the beginning of World <laughs> War II, imagining what the world would look like. And what they actually do is 
Um, they're inspired by a few thinkers around this group. One is Henry Luce, who is the, um, the editor of uh, Life magazine, Time okay. magazine. Yep. Um, you have, um, you know, people like the Dulles brothers um, who were uh, Wall Street lawyers. John Foster Dulles would become the Secretary of State. Alan Dulles would become the head of the CIA. You know, all this group of people. And, and what they envision is this sort of vision of the world where, in a sense, that frontier goes out and, and, and creates a new space for America that's beyond its, its natural borders. They look at the world and they go, basically what you've got is you've got Britain's going to have its empire, Germany's going to um, actually control you know, its, its zone. So what if we had a zone? And they divide up part of the world, actually get a map, and they create this place called the Great Area. The great area. What a creative title. And, and part of it is like the Pacific and, and so on. Um, and then they realize, because they've got some guys there who are Wall Street guys and business guys, they're like, this is not a marketable term. So instead of the great area, and we can't make the argument that America needs to dominate beyond its borders into the great area, let's call this the free world. I see. So the free world actually is their marketing spin on the effects of American sort of influence in the world. Mm. And also the way they set it up very early on is that eventually what will happen is what they learn to do in the, in the free world or the gray area is, is actually eventually going to take over the world. So you have this model of how they're going to run the world. They create these ideas of like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the mm -hmm. World Bank, the United Nations, all these ideas of how America's going to – the world's going to become America, but America's going to set the rules. So in many ways, this is the idea of globalization, exactly as you said. This is the idea that America will control the entire world, but the world is this well-functioning, wonderful place where everything goes well and everything's planned and humans have the ability to actually live their best life and flourish in this idea of what I think actually is a sort of post-Christian version of the world temple. It's funny, just as you were talking, I was... Uh thinking of images of Sean Connery as uh, 007. And I just, I think there are so many examples of this ideology playing out through various Hollywood films um, and other media uh, forms that come out of America. Uh, 100%. So just on a sidebar on James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> so Ian Fleming, yeah. um, who writes the James Bond novels, yes. um, which the movies are made out of, um, he is actually friends with Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA. Um, and he took over the CIA after, um, you know, World War II. And the CIA in many ways was sort of, you know, like this global intelligence, mm. um, uh, you know, sort of it's America's influence out in the world, FBI's influence internally. Um, and what's so interesting is literally like Alan Dulles and Ian Fleming are talking at uh, Ian Fleming's like retreat in Jamaica <laughs> called GoldenEye. Um, I think is the actual name. We can get that double-checked by our intrepid sound man. Um, and they're even talking about this plan for the world. And it's really interesting because James Bond is like the British guy, but he's working with the Americans. Yes. And so it's actually symbolic of almost this Anglo-American world order. And James Bond's sort of like still keeping the flame going for the Brits, but in this new American world, um, which you have these forces, these hidden forces yes. com coming against. And he's always traversing, you know, global landscapes, yes. but like – winning it over for good. Uh, yeah, and he's, he's the ultimate comes. he's the ultimate global citizen. You know, so like back then, what was amazing about him, he was flying around, he's at casinos, he's the global traveller before people could afford to travel. Yes. And, you know, he's your sort of suave guy, gets the woman, travels the world. Tour he's the tourist with a gun. <laughs> 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 uh, 
But it's interesting too because even that you bring up Hollywood. So mm. Samuel Huntington um, made a point. He was a Council of Foreign Relations member, I think, made a point that America's empire is not based on domination but penetration. Mm. So partially also you've got all these people like Walter Lippmann and Henry Luce and all these people who are dreaming this dream of what this American century will look like and they're saying, well, we're going to have an empire but it's going to be a good empire or it's not even an empire. It, and I think even someone said it, oh, I've forgotten who called it, maybe it was Henry Luce, I can't remember, said the, the non-imperialistic empire. So <laughs> what is, is not actually going to um, go out and run countries like former empires did but actually it will sort of move into all the different spheres. And in, in many ways what it becomes is an empire of the imagination. And if you think of what's created, again, what's created is these worlds in people's imagination. Hollywood presents us this vision of the flourishing world temple uh, you know, at, this, at this time. So I guess we're asking the question, you know, what does it look like we've come to the end of the American century? Mm-hmm. Um, seeing so much of what we're seeing in the news, which we can look at as individual, um, you know, moments like the capital, capital riot and, and so on, um, but actually trying to look at this all through a biblical lens. Mm-hmm. So what we're exploring is the idea that, you know, America uh, begins this plan, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations have their war and peace studies in, I think it was 1939 to 1941, where about 20 people planned what the world would look like after the war and how do they plan for this new world, you know, new world of um you know the IMF and you know uh, you know the World Bank and and not just that but really this sort of almost America as a network. There's a lot of talk at the moment about uh, the Chinese government's Belt and Road Plan that um, President Xi has sort of launched out into the world. In many ways, that's just a copy of really what was done in the mid-century by the US. And so it's interesting. A lot of people are aware of you know people like Jamie Smith's work, who's talked a lot about how. We are formed by ideas, but really we're also formed by practices and environments and the things that we repeatedly do. And so we understand that with the temple, that the temple was this sort of 3D teaching tool as well, mm-hmm. where people, you know, in a sense, were discipled by this environment and it was a theology and concrete. Well, what I'm arguing here is that this American world, which so much we take for granted, everything from international airports um, to shopping malls to uh, this global culture that's growing up around the world, is also a kind of temple which has an ideology in concrete. And there's a lot of talk at the moment about ideology coming back and people arguing about socialism or far-right thought or Mm. populism or whatever – and in a sense, we can miss the bigger story in the world that we take for granted because it's absolutely everywhere. Yet we have become aware of it because of the coronavirus pandemic has meant we can't travel like we used to. We're sort of yes. stuck in place, you know. Um, there's lockdowns and all of a sudden that thing that we assumed was so normal part of life isn't anymore and we're given a different access point to look at life. 
So in many ways, this sort of vision of the world that is really sort of put forward in mid-century as sort of America goes beyond its national borders and in a sense becomes this network. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about network dynamics um, in uh, a previous series. If People might want to go back and look at that and yes. the way that it's affecting the world today. And interesting, a lot of that original network thinking starts to begin sort of in the mid-century in the US um, you know, around MIT. There's people talking about things like cybernetics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've got people talking about world systems at the RAND Corporation, which was sort of this military think tank. Um, and so you've got these fascinating moments of like these sort of think tanks, of these small groups of people who are really envisioning and planning for the world to come. And this is sort of modernism, uh, replanning for the world, and this idea of taking Thomas Paine's thought that um, you know in the 18th century, sort of one of the sort of founding group of thinkers of America, that they had it in our ability to remake the world. And again, to just stop for a second and look at that as a post-Christian thought, uh, the promise of Scripture is that God, in a sense, will remake the heavens and the earth, that mm. when Jesus rose on the third day, that resurrection power is released into the world and that Jesus is moving history towards his end, where the world will be resurrected as he was resurrected, will be resurrected, as Corinthians uh, talks about. But it takes that and, in a sense, what it does is it removes some of the Christian um, yes. content of it but has the form. So this concept in American thinking of manifest destiny, which mm -hmm. is linked to this idea of the frontier, that America has this particular mission in the world, that it's different to other countries, that it's different to Tonga or the Czech Republic or Argentina, that it has this special thing in the world, that what it does is imbues it with this spiritual dynamism. So what's really interesting is you have this really practical ideological influence in the world of building you know, like ports and financial structures mm -hmm. and stock exchanges and, um, you know, airports and international travel. Yet at the same time behind it, there's sort of this spiritual categories of the free world, the, the, the you know, the duty of America to sort of help people be released into their sort of freedom. It's, it's really, really interesting. Now, Part of also alongside this is very much that if you are going to have a network, we talked about previously that often there are networks which are controlled by central hubs. Yes. So we have globalization, but really it's an American-led globalization because America is the hub. It's mm -hmm. sort of the, the – the, 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 in a sense, it looks like the Chinese idea of the Middle Kingdom where mm -hmm. China saw itself as the center of a global network, and we talked about that I think in the previous episode, but this is America as a hub. And even in the midst of America, sort of you know, New York in a sense is the temple yes, of yes. influence. Hollywood's the temple of dreams. Las Vegas is the temple of pleasure. Disneyland is the temple of the imagination. All these really interesting worlds. And, you know, even things like in Disney World in Florida, the Epcot Center, these things of these world fairs. I talked about this, um, I think, in Facing Leviathan, these ideas of these world fairs. I think there was yeah. the World Fair in Chicago where uh, they pointed, you know, it was around that new frontier of Kennedy. Like, what would the world look like in the future, you know, with these sort of like monorail trains and <laughs> people wearing sort of, you know, jumpsuits um, that, you know, cleaned themselves and all this sort of stuff. And so really what this is, is this is a theology. This is, this is eschatology. This is pushing forward to what the future will look like. Mm. And the belief here is that if we continue along this path, that actually America can be the deliverer of really what looks like the kingdom of God on earth. Yeah. And so I think a lot of what I'm, what I'm also pushing here and arguing as well is a lot of people talk to me and say America is in a sense becoming post-Christian, yes. which is a conversation I've had a lot of with people. And like in the last 10 years, it's really becoming post-Christian. In many ways, 
you could argue that a lot of these post-Christian projects begin a lot earlier than people realise. Mm. And this sort of concept to build the world and for this transnational Americanism in the world really is a kind of post-Christianity. And at the centre of this, there's sort of this instrumentality of power as this key ingredient for success. So instead of salvation, you get success. Yeah. And just look at how that has affected Christianity in the United States. And so interestingly, at the beginning point of this mid-century, 20th century sort of reimagining um, of this global power, you also have the really beginnings of the contemporary church. And, you know, you have in Los Angeles the sort of first sort of megachurches with the car coming and this idea of the gospel being communicated in this way, which is less about you're a sinner, you're completely broken, you have no hope without God, you've got to fall on your knees in humility and give your life wholly to him to, well, here's this vision of America and the world as your playground and you can have success by following your individual freedom mm. in the empire of liberty, which originally was sort of classified as an empire of liberty from being controlled to now it's hyper freedom, this empire of liberty of you can do what you want and here's the Christian veneer how you're going to do this. So what's really interesting is that you've got this fascinating dynamic where Christianity is in the midst of this. Mm -hmm. So you've got post-Christianity, you've got this enlightenment revolutionary model of the United States, and Christianity is also growing up alongside of it. You. You've got this Puritan, Protestant sort of vision of Christianity at the same time, yes. and they're in mortal combat at all times, mortal combat. And there's this element where what I think you begin to see is in the 20th century where you start to have a syncretism of those two things. Yeah, okay. And so this idea of power, pragmatism, and this sort of like Christian veneer over success really also gets birthed into the world at this time. So as this American influence is going into the world, you also have this spreading to of this new version of sort of contemporary Christianity that goes out into the world at the same time. Now, what's also really interesting is, and this is where we get into the contradictions. Mm -hmm. So you have this vision of America as manifest destiny, empire of liberty, the ability to recreate worlds, whether that's the whole world or your individual world and mm -hmm. to have success. You have this idea of the frontier we talked about last time, this idea of the cowboy on the frontier, the entrepreneur going out, the rugged individual who can make their own freedom. Bruno Massais argues that socialism never really came to America because if a worker was disgruntled, he could just head further out west and create his own world. Yeah. And so you've got that myth of the frontier, the, the rugged individual. But then what's being built? What's being built at the same time is this growing, huge uh, sort of America of bureaucracy and infrastructure and an increasingly larger military needed to actually maintain this. Because if you're going to control the global network, you've also got to control the sea lanes. You've also got to control energy. Uh, you see America, you know, sort of involved in the Middle East, mm -hmm. South America, Asia, you've got to control the whole world. And this actually starts to create this really interesting dynamic on two fronts. Number one, if your entire culture that you're trying to hold everyone together is based on radical individualism, how do you have any sort of kind of um, cohesion? Mm. And at the same time that what is happening is this vision in the mid-century of this American century is being built of an empire of liberty, of the free world, of democracy. You've also got America engaged in a cold war with the communist world. Yes. And so what's really interesting at this time, you know, very early on that, you know, people begin to realize that if you look at the raw numbers, um, in a sense that the communist world can't compete. 
um, you know, Winston Churchill talked about this Iron Curtain which has descended on Europe. And the, the communist world on the other side of the Iron Curtain can't compete with this sort of growing capitalist world, really. Um, it's being really out outspent and, mm. you know, it's energy production that can't compete. But what's really interesting is you begin to see in the mid-century there's things like uh, Paul Nietzsche, who was you know part of the sort of government and the National Security Council, comes up with thing NSC 68, which is this vision of the whole of American society is going to be rearranged to battle communism. And so what begins to happen at this point too is you see almost this spiritual warfare language mm. placed over this great battle against communism. And that there's an element where, yes, they are engaged in this battle. Yes, the Soviets were trying to subvert them. Yes, there was the potential of armed conflict. But it goes beyond that. It becomes an organizing principle for a way of actually arranging the United States. Mm. And so, you know, you see things where this paranoid style, as Hofstadter said, is always part of American politics, comes to the fore. You see Joseph McCarthy, who's trying to find sort of communism somewhere, and it becomes this war against communism. But what's really interesting is it's not pragmatic so much. It's not let's go after these people. It's this spiritual sense, almost like you get of a sort of spiritual entity that could be anywhere. And the whole of American society goes on to this war, and it's this metaphysical enemy. And so it's actually quite incredible that you see this incredible influence throughout the whole of American society where the sort of intelligence apparatuses actually start to have these councils. They start to sponsor newspapers. They start to sponsor yeah. journals. They even go through Hollywood and see who is you know, on this side or not. So you have this really interesting dynamic in, in the US culture of this sort of fear that mm. somewhere inside of us is something that's going to undo the kingdom of freedom. And at that point in time, it's actually communism. Now, this will come back. <laughs> this will come back to. Yeah, okay. Um, so you've got this sort of paranoid culture going on. Um, the other thing that's happening, which is really interesting at this time, is there's this tremendous fear as America heads into this sort of mass culture. You have an increasingly seeming destruction of the individual. Mass production, Henry Ford created the T-model Ford and mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you know, factories are producing mass items, creates mass consumer culture. Uh, Levittown is the first sort of mass produced uh, suburbia. So there's a sense of we're the empire of liberty, we're the empire of radical individualism. However, everyone's starting to look the same. Yeah. In the 50s, it's starting to see mass culture. The music's the same. You've got Hollywood is producing a singular culture and even bureaucracy is creating a singular culture. Um, so there's all these sort of books which start to emerge about this fear of mass culture. And there's this really interesting contradiction. Timothy Malley calls this agency panic. Now, what's really interesting is agency panic is essentially the fear of someone who has been raised on an ideology of individualism, who lives in a culture where increasingly individual has less agency because it's run by all these big entities and yeah, bureaucracies. Okay. So at this point in the mid-century, you've got these two things which come together. You've got this sort of red scare, this metaphysical war against communism, which is everywhere. Red's under the bed. It could be anywhere. There's that classic movie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where yeah. ordinary people are turning because anyone could be a communist. You know, it could be everywhere. That's communist influence. And then you've got this fear around agency, panic. Um, that's coming. So you have this really interesting thing of America expanding out into the world, but then they also take that overseas. So there's this sense where, you know, you've got this sort of intelligence services of the US also fighting communism all over the world, um, this incredible thing. So you're controlling the, the global temple, 
But this is trying to keep the devil out. Yeah. So the devil out of the global temple is the existential enemy that you have at this time. At this time, it's communism yeah. and anything. Communism is, is perceived less in its classic Marxist-Leninist form, but actually as anything which is conformist and comes against the wishes of the individual. So there's this massive existential spiritual battle that the individual is about to get overrun by these forces of mass and conformity. And you must be in constant vigilance against that at any time. This is my brain attempting to somewhat distill what you have just said um, because my brain doesn't work at the same pace. So I'm kind of trying to understand it through there's, – there's kind of two things that you're saying that America or the Americanization of the world – is doing. There is this move towards um, freedom and self-liberty and uh, capitalism and you can have all of these things and live the life and be amazing. But at the same time, there is this, I guess, commodification of self. Like there is – the self is just like replicated again and again and again and ultimately no one is really individual but yes. that's it's almost its own byproduct but it doesn't make any sense like there's this weird tension between the the two of them and mm. that's what's happening globally mm. am i kind of getting what you're saying yes so this globalization this this project of america as the world yes. the world's temple let's yeah. call it that and the idea that we can we through human power and in many ways, this is a Babel project. Yeah. That we can create this world, which is planned and free and just and democratic, but do that in this way where it's actually been done by humans. It's inevitably going to contain two things. One, it's going to contain elements of our create our image of God creative nature. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we see these elements which are actually good. But then also it's going to contain elements of our fallenness as humans. Yeah, okay. G.K. Chesterton talked about creation as a, a kind of a person coming across the world we live in as a person who comes across a treasure ship that has been smashed on the rocks. Huh. There's bits which are, are good, other bits which are broken, some bits which are rock. So because this is a post-Christian creation, that there's going to be elements where it is good. There's an element that, you know, a country moving from totalitarian rule to a more liberal democratic world, um, that's a good thing. Mm. Um, People not living under tyranny is a good thing. But there's an element when that project is then continued in human power beyond what humans can do. And freedom is moves from freedom from actual tyranny to freedom to be whatever you want to be. And there's a thin line between freedom from oppression and then freedom, which is the kind of freedom that the devil is whispering 
that Adam and Eve can have in their ears from God. It becomes its own tyranny, right? Yes, yes, the tyranny of freedom. And so I guess what I'm saying too is that there is this inherent control. What we are seeing in the world now, Mm. what we have seen in all the tumult around the the, presidency of Donald Trump, what we saw in the Capitol, right, what we're seeing even in GameStop and, (laughs) you know, uh, all of this is these dynamics um, these protest movements around the world. These are these dynamics that actually are the contradictions that inevitably arise in the unspoken religion of the world temple because it falls short of the glory of God. Yeah. And I'm asking people to actually take a biblical, bigger 20,000-foot view of this mm. and actually see this in, in, a, in a different light because I sort of feel like just trying to answer, just looking at this through a political polarized lens of yeah. the left-wing view or the right-wing view or the centrist view that, you know, you, you fail because, you know, you don't have the spiritual insight to see this, you know. So I'm trying to like ask the question, how do we look at this biblically um, at this point in time? So I guess what I'm pointing out in the in the last section is the fact that this project was built mm. and but it contained these contradictions. Yes. Now it was really interesting that as we sort of hit the 60s and 70s, these contradictions became more apparent. Mm-hmm. Um, people wanted freedom um, and you saw things like the civil rights movement, you yeah. saw women's rights, you saw all different movements come up, which then in a sense were created because the ideology of this thing was freedom and democracy and the inherent value of every individual. Yes. But then the, those, those movements also exposed the ways in which the network of those things didn't live up to its own ethos and ideology. Yes, yes. Um, you also saw that it was hard to control the global te- the global network. Um, so there was the oil crisis when a lot of the Arab nations weren't happy with the US's support of Israel mm-hmm. and started changing oil prices. And all of a sudden, Americans are freaking out and there's panic at the pumps, as it was called, in the 1970s um, because uh, people had to pay more money at the petrol pumps. Yes. And this idea that you can just be free and get in the road and have cheap, cheap you know, fuel – um, actually was, you know, caused. And all of a sudden in the 1970s, you see this tremendous um, lack of confidence in actually this world order. Terrorism grows around the world. Um, you have this backlash. Television, uh, which brought the American dream into people's land rooms, also is the communicator then and facilitator of terrorist acts where people use the network back in on itself. Mm. Um, so terrorist movements all around the world grow up. You begin to have populist movements grow up around the world in the 1970s. Um, the, uh, I think it was the Council of Rome, which is like the, uh, the, the, the what's it called, the Rome Council or Group of Rome or whatever, the Club of Rome, which was the precursor to the EU. Mm-hmm. I think they wrote, they wrote a, a report in the 1970s called The Crisis of Democracy. Really interesting, the 1970s, people are saying democracy is in crisis. People are turning again to far left, far right ideologies inequality has grown, racism has grown, Mm. women's rights are there, very similar to our time at this point. Now, what's really interesting is then this is sort of pushback where, um, you know, in many ways, Council of Foreign Relations have their thing called the 1980s project. (laughs) So they do the next one from the War and Peace Project in the 1940s and like, well, this is where we're going. Technology, greater globalisation, they imagine the world that we have now and they do a second project in the 1980s and in very much, yeah, that's the idea of like... Global capital moving around the world, computers, yes, um, you know the internet, all of this. Oh, then, hello, then comes. internet. Yes, and it's really interesting. The internet. So basically, the internet, in many ways, again, this is a spawn of this Cold War thinking, 
this comes out of things like NSC 68, where basically someone said, well, how do we keep the American government going if we're attacked by nuclear weapons? We connect the computers and we have this decentralized network, which is resistant to the actual communists attacking us. Mm-hmm. So again, this is another thing which is spurned from within this, this, this network, but then also contains somewhat the seeds of its own destruction within it. Yeah. Um, you have all these other fascinating things like um, you know, you have they're trying to work out. Rand Corporation is trying to work out how to get B fifty two nuclear bombers to go further, and how to get the pilots to fly even further, so they can fly over you know far reaching parts of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. They begin to study what those algorithmically, what those pilots' lives are. That basically those how much they spend on real estate, how much they shop. They're trying to go down to this data level to actually understand. Cool. And so the idea of social media yeah. um, that we understand today of all these data points to actually understand the the behavior of individuals doesn't go back to the early days of internet marketing. It goes way back to the Cold War where we're trying to work out how can humans act like machines. You've got the Rand Corporation during the Vietnam War who basically then put up all these sensors in the Vietnamese jungle where they can you know, work out where the Viet Cong are going, the North Vietnamese army, they're literally sitting in front of these screens at these headquarters reading all these data points and trying to actually run this data war in, mm. the, in Vietnam. So it's actually this computerized war. So all these elements from within this sort of world temple that we see now are really modern actually have an earlier, earlier history that sort of then mm. comes to, to swing back. So what we see then in the 1980s sort of is again to it seems like there's sort of a regrouping of this sort of sort of elite at the top of the world temple. There's this new vision. There's a new confidence. Ronald Reagan again sort of envisions uh, Thomas Paine's uh, sort of, you know, uh, he actually says in sort of this, this challenging moment to the Soviets, he says, you know, we have it in our power to remake the world. He again invokes those words. He says to President Gorbachev, bring down that wall. And, and then we have the moment, 1989, when the Cold War falls. And what happens is America has been engaged in this existential crisis, this defining struggle against communism. Communism is gone. The World Temple seemingly has won. Mm. And so that part of the world, which the World Temple didn't touch, the free world, all of a sudden is the whole world seemingly or has the potential for the whole world. Yes. And so this is like then a, a, a sort of expanse of... of of that dream to take over the whole world. Now, what's really interesting, who then becomes the enemy if it's not the communists? Yes. And so it actually goes back to an older sort of American sort of um, temptation, which is to see the government itself as the enemy. So everything that people thought the communists were doing is then in, in some circles transferred over the government. And that's in many ways what Ronald Reagan does as well. So you've got this idea of here's this empire of freedom going out, but actually who's stopping it? It's the bureaucracy. Yeah, right. It's actually government. It's people in Washington. It's people at the town hall who are putting all these things in place. It's actually the EU. It's the United Nations. So all of a sudden in the world, you've got that agency panic between what you saw in the, in the early sort of 1950s of, oh, man, is the individual going to lose his identity versus all this bureaucracy? Now is reimagined. George Bush Sr. gives a speech um, and he talks about something called the New World Order. Now, he's saying communism's fallen 
and we now have this new world order. And this is grabbed on by conspiracy theorists who are saying, hang on, this elite in the world, they're actually creating this new order. And in some ways they sort of were, but not in the complete conspiratorial ways that people imagine it. Mm. So all of a sudden then you have this new underground in America trying to hold on to that sense of self, particularly also what you've got going on is you've got manufacturing going to Japan, yep. South Korea, China, and you've got these people who believed in the American dream and that's actually disappearing for them. And increasingly this belief takes hold that there is this conspiracy against the individual by this sort of hidden bureaucratic elite in the world. Mm -hmm. You overlay that, that sense of paranoia that it's not just a, a, a definite thing, it's almost this reds under the bed, it's metaphysical, it could be anywhere in the world. It reminds me of uh, a lot of those television shows from the 90s, I'm thinking Buffy, uh, this very, you know, picture of American high school called Sunnydale, but under the surface there's this like darkness mm -hmm. kind of leaking. It could be anywhere and who knows when it's going to pop out and, mm -hmm. you know, ruin life as we know it. Um, yes. What other shows were there? Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Oh, my gosh. Classic, like Americana. Yes. You know, it's almost 50s Americana, but then this yes. sort of like lurking evil, dark, yes. the Black Lodge, you know, yep. behind. X-Files is another classic. Like mm -hmm. X-Files is that that sense of that agency panic I talked about yeah. of, you know, the government is covering up these things, UFOs, you know, and almost into that conspiratorial realm. And it's really interesting, Timothy McVeigh, who was the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, probably one of the, I don't know if it's the biggest, um, I think it was the biggest before 9-11 sure. um, sort of terrorist attack in the United States where he blew up a government building in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Very much as all these themes are here, this belief that there's a new world order, that the bureaucracy is holding back. He was a veteran um, of the first Gulf War yeah, and okay. had seen, um, you know, basically, you know, he, what he felt war crimes. But then this war was like, you know, championed, and you know, in very much that Gulf War One was seen as this sort of fact that this this new sort of American world could deal with conflict and the conflict in Yugoslavia that it could just come in through massive shock and awe, deal with the world's problems, and then leave. Mm. Um, and you know, he ends up building this, blowing up this federal building. But what's really interesting too, this is early internet as yes. well. So yes. the internet's just coming in the 90s and it's connecting all these subcultures. And that's happening in all kinds of ways from sexual identity subcultures uh, uh, to like um, you also see like even th this is where they sort of have this re-emergence of white supremacy, far-right thought. Mm -hmm. And Timothy McVeigh is in this really world sort of milieu of like anti-government thinkers, like people into UFOs and conspiracy theories, like Aryan nation, like fascist sort of far-right thinkers, white supremacists. And it's almost like the, the it's again too, this is like a sort of blowback of these elements which were always the contradictions in this great project of this sort of American temple, issues of slavery, racism, inequality, in a sense of military, you know, adventurism overseas, all of these start to, to blow back into yeah. the United States. And of course, you know, that sort of is growing. There's even movies like, you know, people sort of talking now, I oh, will get to that in a second. I'll play, we'll, come, <laughs> we'll come back to that. But, you know, so really all that stuff about domestic terrorism and, you know, white supremacists, that was happening in the 90s. Mm. But then what happens is this moment of 9-11. Yes. So 9-11 happens and it's a shock. Again, too, just think about it. Pentagon, the center of the American global military network. Yes. Wall Street, the center of the American um, economic network. Yes. And then the White House was actually meant to be the third target, um, but the plane was taken down by the passengers, um, which is the center of American political network in the world. And so you have this network uh, strategy used by Al-Qaeda, who's a network, mm. um, actually coming back on the country itself. 
And how does it respond? It responds in the way that it had using, in a sense, this war. There was a war on communism. Now we have, we also had in the 80s a war on drugs. Yes. And now it's a war on terrorism. So it's similar to the frontier, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And so you've now got this like, this this new battle, which is going to be this complete battle, uh, you know, against this existential, you know, force in the world of, you know, they call it Islamic fascism or, you know, Islamic jihadism. And, uh, you know, again, to America sort of then goes outward again and, you know, into Afghanistan, into um, um, Iraq. And it's really interesting, like Afghanistan, you know, early on there was a battle at a prison um, before really troops were on the ground and they'd captured the Northern Alliance, had captured a whole bunch of Al-Qaeda Taliban foreign fighters. And they sort of rebelled and basically the CIA had to come in. I remember at the time being really struck, you saw this CIA operators, special forces operators, and they sort of had their casual gear on, tactical vests, assault rifles, big beards because they were trying to fit in um, to the Taliban. Um, And I was like, that's really weird. Look, these big beards, these guys, they're like, are they civilians? Are they soldiers? What's so interesting is that's what you see the militias look like now. Mm. People who stormed the capital look like those sort of like CIA special operators. And Michelle Foucault, who don't agree with everything he says, but has a really interesting theory that um, according to the boomerang, the idea mm. that basically whatever tactics uh, governments would use in their colonies against populations uh, to repress in their colonies would eventually come back. Yeah. And even you think about the war on terror when you know they move into Baghdad and the first war on terror, so the first Gulf War seemed to confirm the power of this new you know, world temple, the mm-hmm. second uh, Gulf War actually showed how it's really hard to fight a network. Uh, you're no longer fighting against, you know, Saddam Hussein's, you know, army. You're mm-hmm. now fighting against this this really loose network of jihadists and ex-Bathists and, and all different groups. And, you know, Baghdad, which originally they thought would be sort of liberated and the message of this evangelistic message of of, um, democracy and freedom would just be taken up and people would greet the tanks with flowers. Actually, there's this insurgency which kicks off Mm -hmm. and Baghdad downtown becomes the green zone. And there's fences and a huge military presence. Again, the absolute irony that we saw after the January 6th um, riot at the Capitol, you've got now... uh, uh, Washington looking like a green zone. And there was mm-hmm. even a report, IEDs, which is a term that comes from the Gulf War, where little improvised explosive devices were used against tanks. They were warning of IED strikes against uh, yeah. you know, Biden's inauguration. So this bizarre like sort of judgment or the, like this weird sort of bounce back uh, you know, in this world temple. Um, so you know, during this time, you know, the sort of moves into this phase, we have the global financial crisis, which again is sort of the financial elite of the world who are doing these sort of, you know, financial schemes which then collapse in on themselves and inequality is growing. And what's happening at this time is more and more people are questioning the economic, um, I guess, you know, uh, ethos, if you like, the theology of, you know, the world temple. Just to go back one step, interesting, like just before 9-11, there was something else which is really interesting, which is the Battle of Seattle, Mm -hmm. which was this sort of pushback, the start of the beginning of the pushback against globalization as well. And so that sort of movement then, you know, changes and turns into things like Occupy Wall Street. And you've got this pushback against this this thing, which is growing on the left, but it's also growing on the right as well. As you've got people who are like, I voted, you know, traditionally I'm a working class, voted for the left, but the left increasingly was seen as the party or, or complicit with big business and these sort of global elites, if you like, the priesthood which runs the sort of world's temple. Yes. 
Um, and so what you see is all these threads start to move together and the sort of shaking of the world temple occurs. And so we see these ongoing shaking sort of coming together. And then in 2016, we just begin to have these sort of huge shocks where what characterized the world temple was its planning. This was the assumption that you could plan in a particular way. And because in a sense, the world temple, you know, everything was controlled and what was bad was kept out and it was, things were secure and there's bureaucracy and management and power and pragmatism that ran everything really well, that therefore you could do long-term strategic planning. And that gets rocked with you know, 9-11, GFC, um, even nature hitting back like the mm. Asian tsunami, yeah. um, you know, climate change. Um, you start to see this increased frustration and just the embers of something, populism growing, which is really about, you know, that sense of inequality that many people feel. The resentment that many people feel that there's inequality within their 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 uh, populations. But then what globalization is doing and what the economics um, tells us is that globalization is often great for people in other countries when manufacturing goes to them. So benefits people around the world, but often doesn't benefit the working class within Western societies because yes. they lose their jobs. Yeah. And that resentment's just going. But in a sense, those who are sort of at the top of things don't see this coming. No. And then eventually what you get is you get this wave of populism. Everything from Brexit to the election of Donald Trump to the popular, you know, Marine Le Pen um, to, you know, even you know, Chavez in, in Venezuela, like this left and right populism all around the world. And this begins to shake because this is an existential threat mm. to the project of, yeah. of the World Temple. Also what happens at this time is you see the internet change from something which is another frontier, this is manifest destiny, um, to actually being seeing something which is now undermining and dangerous and yes. in a sense gives a weapon to those who feel like they're not in control of the levers of the world's temple. So you see this massive, massive rebellion. Now, I just want to go back to something and I'll make a comment on Donald Trump. Um, really interesting, um, Mally talks about um, the fact that uh, you have uh, that tension between this American model of bureaucracy and of doing things really well, that American ability to create something like Fordism, which is Henry Ford created the factory where everything's done brilliantly. And he talks about you have in American organizations often this sense where they're super well run, corporations, people do things by the book, people work together. But then at the top of these corporations, because there's still something in that, which in a sense feels almost oppressive because it's swallowing up the individual, mm -hmm. you then have the maverick CEO. <laughs> the Steve Jobs, yeah. the sort of Richard Branson figure. Mm. So everyone in the organization is doing everything right, but here's the guy who breaks the rules. He doesn't even want to be in the office. He's off surfing and dreaming up the next big thing. And so it's this really interesting idea of you have the charismatic leader at the top who represents the frontier working with the organization which represents the bureaucracy and yes. the world temple, if yeah. you like. Yeah, so it's yeah. this contradiction. It's like a compromise. So in many ways, I think what happens in the United States, well, hang on, before we go there, really <laughs> interesting that that's almost the model you see with churches sometimes. Yeah. So you've got the big church where everything's run really well, the sort of mega church where everything's you know, systematized and got these nice people who work their you know, MacBooks really well and they've got Sunday systems and everything's worked to tea. But then you've got sort of the maverick CEO slash senior pastor who's different and mm -hmm. is rock and roll and looks different, really interesting. And that actually builds a, 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 almost a platform. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I think we're actually seeing that 
as that's collapsing in the real world, we're seeing that collapsing also in the Christian world at yes. the same time. Slight yep. side comment there. But in many ways, I think what the election of Donald Trump also is electing someone who represents the frontier. Yeah. The wild person who doesn't obey the rules. This is the cowboy. This is the biker. This is the, you know, this is the Tony Montana, the, you know, Scarface. This mm -hmm. is the person who breaks the rules. And what it's trying to do is if America's the corporation which is becoming too, you know, like the individuals losing themselves in this bureaucracy, we're going to put the cowboy at the top, you know, to hope that that actually, you know, uh, you know, resolves this great tension that we're all feeling. Where does this all end up? Not going to go through the Donald Trump presidency, but where it ends up is what we essentially then see at the Capitol, right? Yeah. Is almost this assault on the temple itself. Like in a sense, it's coming back from the global temple right to the essence of what's at the core of the American century is the Capitol building. And the, the sort of charismatic leader of authority then uses what he has, which is this sort of popular weaponry, using in a sense also the... Um, Internet, you mm -hmm. know, uses the internet, which is this network tool created in the middle of this giant network, which in a sense is used back in on itself. You've got people who come who in a sense look like the special forces operators and many were veterans yes. of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Many were people who actually had lost their jobs, but also other people too who were sort of business mavericks. You've also got evangelical Christians there who also feel that actually this sense of fear about a secularizing post-Christian culture who in a sense have bought into some of that paranoid thinking that goes back to the Red Scare, yeah. that there's this metaphysical thing there. Everything's communism. If you you know like have a, like national healthcare like we have, that's communism when we just see it as sort of like good welfare for a capitalist system. Yes. So there's this sense where there's this metaphysical danger lurking. But then also it's interesting too, the elites also see this metaphysical danger as well. They've got their own version of this populism. Um, they're looking at this mass and there are far right uh, people in there, there's special for ex-special forces operators, but there's also people who are just frustrated as well. But all are sort of painted in this giant mm. block categories. They're the communists, they're the far right insurgents, and the two come to do battle for the purity of the great temple at its absolute core. So in a sense, this is this incredible moment of drama. And I just want to get to this point, Bruno Masai, so we've talked about a lot here. Uh, his argument is that America has, in a sense, reached the frontiers of its expansion, that in a sense it reached the front of its limitations in its global sort of temple. And the next frontier, if you want to maintain your freedom, is actually fantasy. Mm-hmm. And so what you've seen is this almost fantasy politics. So what's fascinating is you've got like the QAnon shaman, um, you know, guy with the bear hat and the <laughs> horns. You know, and the first imagery I saw of the Capitol right was him in the in the House of Reps or whatever they call it. The, um, you know, that's our version of it. I've forgotten yeah. their name. Yeah, I don't know. You know, in the speaker's chair. And I'm just like, this looks like a movie. Yeah. But what's amazing is, in a sense, it's like this coup attempt, but it's totally fantasy because in a proper coup attempt. You then come in, establish your ministers of government, take over the police stations, take over the, the TV stations, take over the courthouses and then control the levers of power. Mm. They don't do that. They just run at the institutions. The House, um, the, the Congress represents the bureaucracy and institutions at its highest form. They run in there but then they don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, and there's different plans where they're trying to kill people, whatever. But really this is the network. What we saw at the Capitol on January 6th was what we were already seeing on the internet and this is the network coming back to bite itself. Mm. And so it's this incredible moment of high drama which I think in a sense marks the end of something which began in the midpoint of the 20th century. And almost like a 
Wagnerian opera, <laughs> The Twilight of the Gods. <laughs> this is an end of world moment. Not an end of the world, but an end of, I think, a kind of idol that we could create a world temple in which the king was humans, mm. that humans were God, where we could plan our way out of the struggles that humans have always faced, that we could solve the world's problems, that this great post-Christian project based on human power and ingenuity could be accomplished by us. And it's not just an American dream. America put it into the world, but in a sense, anyone who's in the developed world believes this well, and many yeah. people outside the developed world, this is their dreams. This is not just an American thing. In a sense, many of us are like Americans in this, that the world was our playground, that history was just going to slowly eke towards a better end. Um, you know, I, I just see January 6th as this emblematic moment, almost like a bookend to, in a sense, 9-11. And in many ways, people would ask the question, what's next? That's a downer, this moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we look at the world and really what – this is agency panic, that thing of actually humans don't have the power we thought they did, that actually the world is controlled by forces beyond us, that in a sense humans are moving in this, this much more irrational way than we realised, mm. that if we gave more people information that things would get better, but actually people don't need more information than they need a revelation, that if we just gave more opinions, things would be better. We don't need more opinions, we need more wisdom. And – this sense that, you know, we, we, we find ourselves at a moment now of chaos. The agency panic is made worse in a sense by the coronavirus as well, which has really yeah. brought our, our human agency, you know, into question and our ability to change things. So we find ourselves at this moment and it's a moment of chaos. But what I want to remind people is Genesis 1. Mm the beginning of the story, or just come to the end of my <laughs> grand <laughs> narrative of, of, of the capital right from 1939 to, to 2021, January 6th. But at the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures, we have a formless mass. Hmm. We have chaos. We have waters that are choppy. And over those waters hover the spirit. And whenever it's chaotic and, and messy and unformed, but the spirit is still active, there is always the potential for growth. And I believe the answer at this moment, as the world temple is failing, and look, who knows, maybe it'll be rebuilt. You know, maybe it's going to keep powering on. Um, but there is a moment now where people are questioning. And I believe at this moment, this is actually a renewal moment. I said mm -hmm. to people in 2019 in my book, crisis precedes renewal. I did not expect this levels, <laughs> um, but I've got to stick to my own words. And there is an element that at this moment, God is asking a whole new people, what is a temple in the New Testament? It's not a building built in concrete. It's not the walls of the church. The pandemic's shown us that. Mm. Like Sundays can stop and the people of God keeps going. Buildings can be closed off for public safety, but the church keeps going. The spirit is still hovering and the human... <laughs> the New Testament tells us, is the new temple. The people of God together are the new temple. And so the Spirit is hovering, seeing who is humble, seeing who looks at this moment, realizing their own powerlessness. The Spirit hovers over the American church at a moment where prophecy has failed, where syncretism and compromise has occurred. But the Spirit now looks for the humble. 
the eagle soars looking for those who are willing to move forward, not know, knowing that they, they have no ability to move forward apart through the power of God. And so whilst this seems like the end, it actually, I think, is a new beginning. And I think that potential and possibility hover over this moment in such a profound, holy way that we must be aware of it. And we're people of the third day. That when Mary went to the tomb, all seemed lost. But actually it was the moment she was going to receive all. I think that's where we're at. Thanks, Mark.